This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm a road, brother, honey. Welcome to the Ugly Things Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Stacks, the editor and publisher of Ugly Things Magazine. In this episode, we're plunging back into the world of pretty things. My guest today is John Fulliger, better known as John Stacks, the Pretty Things bass player from their 1963 inception until early 1967, when he left for other horizons. In this interview, John takes us back to the earliest days of the Pretty Things, setting the scene for a track-by-track examination of the band's utterly fabulous debut album, released in March 1965 and titled, What Else? The Pretty Things. In the course of that discussion, he also talks about life at their notorious residence at 13 Chester Street, their interactions with the early Rolling Stones, fun and games with firearms in Scotland, the beauty of toy shop harmonicas in the key of C, and a lot more. Hope you enjoy our conversation. So we're going to talk about the first album, but before we get to that, let's cover a little background. The band formed while Phil and Dick were still at art school, but you'd known Phil quite a long time before that, right? I had, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, I knew Wally first because I went to primary school when I was five uh, with Wally, and uh, just the local one. And then as I grew up, uh, my sister had gone off to America when I was 13, uh, left, me, left me with my dad, and she always felt guilty about that, but still, never mind, that's another thing. And I was living at home with my dad, and he used to go down the pub most nights and um, to play darts and see his friends. And I was home alone. So I, I really didn't have many friends. So I started hanging out with Wally when I was about, I don't know, 14. And he he was friends with Phil across the road. Right. So we we all we all started hanging out together, the three of us, and uh, yeah, and Wally had a, an acoustic guitar, and his brother-in-law, or soon to be brother-in-law, had a, uh, a Gretsch guitar, and we all used to get round and sort of plonk around a bit, and uh, yeah. So I was always interested in music, 
and I had an old banjo lying around the house that was uh, my apparently my great grandfather who who owned it was a uh, a busker on the beaches on the south coast. So uh, yeah, anyway, so I used to pick out a few tunes on that, and then later on, when I was a bit older, I joined a skiffle group, as most people do in those times, anyway. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and then. When I got friendly with Phil and he was going to art school, then I met Dick, and Dick became a, a better friend than what than uh, Phil did. So, you know, <laughs> I mean, I, well, the two of them are much of a part, and I ended up going to the art school and hanging out with all their friends, which were great because they were they weren't like ordinary people; they were all individuals from all different walks of life. Um, lots of them were at art school, but they had, all their friends were different as well and interesting. Right. So, uh, yeah, we used to hang, hang around the big group. You remember Keith Richards being around during that time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We used to play, say, in the cloakroom at lunchtimes. And, uh, yeah, and he was very young then. He would have only been about 17, I suppose, if that, yeah. 16, 17. Yeah. But it, nothing. he didn't look anything like he does now. Of course, <laughs> but uh, no, it was good. It was great, uh, and I, Dick and Dick and, and uh, Keith used to play guitar, and I'd play a bit of harp, which I picked up, and uh, yeah, we had fun. It was great. Then, of course, the uh, the end of the school year uh, dance was on, and they had the Rolling Stones playing, which was one of their first gigs, and uh, and Dick mentions that. In in a in the book in a book, uh, I think a Rolling Stones book, where it shows a picture of him and Keith doing the Chuck Berry duck thing. Yeah, and uh, Dick was saying that they they got twenty five quid for that that gig, and uh, yeah, he thought that was great, and that's what really set him on the path of forming a group. Yeah, because so, he he wanted yeah. to stay on at art school and and. Uh... He wanted to go to the Central School, and and he didn't want to play bass in the in the Rolling Stones. No, know? he was exactly. a guitar player. Yeah, that's right. So I guess when Brian that's Jones it. came along, that sort of <laughs> that was when Dick was on his way out at that point. Look, um, I don't think Dick would have been in the band for too long once uh, Oldham took over. Pardon me, because he didn't look the part uh, for the Stones. He would have been an oddball. And I think they would have got rid of him, as they did with Stewie as well. Yeah, right. And, uh, at that um, dance that I'm talking about, the end of year thing, yeah, Stewie was actually playing piano in the band. Oh, yeah. And he was great. He was fabulous. Yeah, really good. But yeah. then, then he became – then they dropped him because he didn't fit, but he still played on the records. Yeah. And all that. Yeah. And he – Everybody in the industry was really pissed off because he was just being a roadie with all their gear and everything and lugging it in and out of Denmark Street into the recording studios. And uh, everybody was, this is bad, you know? Everybody's looking, felt really sorry for him. Yeah. But, uh, I think he was still getting a share of the band, of the monies. Okay. I'm not sure whether that's true or not, but I hope so. Obviously, yeah, to, to stick around under those circumstances, he must have had some incentive other than loyalty, you know. Yeah, you'd think so. You'd think so. At what point was it decided that you were going to be bass player? 
Uh, well, it's hard to say. I, I knew I couldn't play guitar very well, six string, um, and, and Dick had the bass sitting there, and we needed a bass, so I picked it up. And uh, Dick showed me a few progressions, not much, I have to say. And it's very, uh, it's, at that stage, I just wanted to do it, you know. And I, I just pulled it out of the air, I think. And uh, I just did it. I never studied any books or listened to anyone in particular, um, except for the blues records. And I kind of took it from there and then just did my own thing, basically. Right. And uh, I was happy about that because, um, you know, I've been told since that, that I played, you know, reasonably well, a different to other bands. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I know yeah. that when, I know when we did the, uh, the thing at the Hunter Club every Tuesday, uh, for a oh, for over a year or more, lots of guys in the in the bands came down to watch and uh, to sort of pick up a few hints. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why, <laughs> but there you go. Well, you, uh, I've you been were, told you were obviously a natural for it. Well, yeah, kind of, but I mean, not technically brilliant, but uh, yeah, I I could keep the rhythm going. Yeah, you know? no, I, I mean, I, you're one of my favourite bass players yeah. ever. Oh, good. <laughs> I mean, I tell you who did influence me was uh, uh, Duck Duck Dunn in uh, Booker T and the MGs. Yeah, from Sax Records. Yeah, yeah Booker T and the MGs. I mean, he's he was one of my favourites at the time, and he was just so solid all the way through. And he didn't do anything particularly clever, but it was just a solid rhythm. Yeah, with him and the drummer, which which impressed me and still does to this day. Yeah, yeah. So. You know, so in the beginning, then it's Bill and Dick and yourself, and then the next yeah. person to join, I guess, was was Brian Pendleton. So, tell us That's a little right. bit about, we about Brian. Okay, we needed a, a rhythm guitarist, and uh, Dick put an advert in the Melody Maker, and Brian got in touch, and Dick talked to him, uh, and they realised that he, uh, Dick, had been at Dartford Grammar with him. And uh, Brian was uh, in the year below Dick. And anyway, we arranged a meeting so we'd go round to his house. So we got we got the bus down from Bexley Heath down to to Dartford, and uh, we found his house. And uh, we went up to the front door and knocked. And I, you'd probably know that, but his his mother answered the door and she took one look at us and she shouted out because we'd asked for Brian, and she shouted up the corridor. She said, Brian, there's a, a load of gypsies here to see you. <laughs> uh, so already at that so stage, we, you had you you guys had a different look. You you were Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we were part of the art school crowd, which was uh, you know, which were different to other people. Yeah, right. There was a yeah, sort of a bohemian yeah, element there, yeah. Yeah, that kind of thing. We had all sorts. But what about Brian? How did Brian fit with that? Well, we got Brian to play guitar for us through his uh, nice amplifier, which had two inputs, and it was quite loud. And he, uh, yeah, he was very, very good. He was a great rhythm player and technically brilliant. He knew he knew all the chords, <laughs> so even more chords. Well, you only what do you need? But he knew all of them, all the sevenths and ninths and diminished sixths and whatever. Give it all the rest, but he could play them all, and. Uh, so, but he soon came round to what we uh, decided that he should do. So he became a, a three-chord wonder doing <laughs> uh, all the stuff. And Dick, Dick was quite 
firm with him on what to play. And he, yeah, he took it on board. And uh, yeah, I was just reading this morning in that Alan Lakey book. I don't know if you've got that. Yeah, you might have. Yeah, I was. Yeah, I was reading a little bit about that. And Brian, uh, when was it? That was really early on. Yeah, and Dick, Dick told him that he had to do exactly what he said because <laughs> Dick is not a strong person, particularly. But with Brian, he was. So this is what you got to do, and this is the way you're going to do it. So yeah, and it worked out perfectly, and Brian ended up a sensational rhythm guitarist. I mean, I was listening to the album yesterday and this morning, and and the rhythm guitar on it is fabulous. I thought really, really good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you don't even notice it that much, but yeah, no, it's really good. Actually, I'm I'm looking at the cover now. This I got it on CD from the box set. (laughs) Brian's looking very apprehensively up at Dick, and Dick (laughs) looks like he's. Is a personification of Jesus on the cross. <laughs> Brian's going, what? <laughs> yeah, it's weird. <laughs> so in the beginning, you went through several drummers. I know there's Pete Kitley, yeah. Viv Andrews, yeah. Viv Broughton, a lot of Vivs. So, I mean, what do you remember I about any of them? Not a lot. But, I mean, recently I've been told by Dick that Viv Broughton and Viv Andrews was the same person. Hmm. I think. I'm not sure. I think they they were two different people. I'm pretty certain they were. Yeah. I but Dick seems to be. I'm not sure about that either. Anyway, whatever. How can you have three Vivians in one band? <laughs> like one after another? That's what impossible. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, none of them worked out too well, except uh, Viv. Viv Prince. I mean, when he came along, he was sensational. Such a great, great drummer, which we... We knew he was great, um, and it wasn't until after he'd gone that we realised how great he was. Yeah, we were had a, had trouble filling his shoes. Yeah, so I think things really started to happen pretty quickly. This is before Viv when you got Brian Morrison became involved as the manager. Um, yeah, yeah, and uh, and then Jimmy Duncan also came in. Right, what are your memories of how that came about? Well, well. Uh, in the book, I was just reading, I was just catching up a couple of chapters. Uh, Alan said that it was at the, what was it, the Royal College? No, it wasn't Royal College. Cent- central School of Art. Oh, I know it was the Central because we did their annual dance there, yeah. right? Uh, that was where Jimmy Duncan approached the band. Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't the other college that we did. It was the Central School Dance. Right. I remember it distinctly because he came up and he was pissed, and uh, but he he, he said that he uh, that he he had contacts and he could get us a recording contract, which he did do with Fontana, and we thought, oh yeah, but this guy is just all talk, um, yeah. but he, no, he came through. He came through. Yeah. And you, and when Jimmy came along, you were already Brian was already kind of working with you, so they yeah. teamed up at that point. But Jimmy had the connections yes. in, in the music business. That's it. Yeah, Brian didn't. Um, right. Later on, he did, obviously. But um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he did. Yeah, he surely did. <laughs> so, so yeah, he got you to deal with Fontana. There was an audition, right, of, of some sort. Well, I don't remember that. I don't remember the audition. But what we what we had done uh, was recorded Rosalind at Regent Sound, and that was the only time we recorded anywhere else uh, at the beginning. 
apart from from uh, Philips Fontana. Uh, but we had that. Maybe they just played that to them. I don't know. Uh, and at that stage, uh, the Stones were going great guns. And I think that Fontana wanted to jump on the bandwagon and they must have told someone to be on the lookout for another band like the Stones if they can get them because they wanted to jump on it as well. Yeah. So I'm only assuming that, but I can see uh, see their thoughts uh, at the time that they didn't want to be left behind. So I'm they going- got us, unfortunately yeah. for them. <laughs> <laughs> So going back to that Rosalind uh, recording at Regent Sound, that is the yeah. version of Rosalind that was released as the single, right? I'm pretty sure it is, uh, but I couldn't swear to it. I seem to remember playing it in uh, Stanhope Place. Yeah, I mean, uh, when you did it at know, Regent it, Sound, was was Viv Prince already behind the drums? I think so. Yeah. I'm not sure. No, no one seems to be able to say definitively whether Viv played on that because at one point Viv I'm pretty sure said Bobby played on it. Bobby Graham. Mm, I don't think so. Viv, uh, Dick well, if it was Viv. Bobby, yeah, I think it's Viv. Um, Viv's pretty distinctive. Some of those runs he does on the drums, are, you know, are Viv, Viv Prince. <laughs> yeah, uh, I couldn't say for certain. I mean, we're talking 60 years ago, and uh, that that whole era. It just happened so fast. Um, it was a, just a whirlwind. And, you know, it all, it all happened, seemed to be happening to somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, I mean, so you record Rosalind, Viv has joined the group, and right away yeah. your, your whole life must have changed. Yeah, absolutely. We were – well, everyone was living at home uh, before that, and uh, then we all moved into Chester Street. And the whole band, and that was that was Brian Jones's place before us. He, he he rented that place. Then he left, and the guy the guy who was living in the basement, Andrew Jackson, he was a would be DJ, but he, he never got anywhere. <laughs> he was a nice guy, and uh, he rented it out to us, to the band, uh, without his father knowing, and his father actually owned the building, and so. But in the end, his father found out, found out, and threw us out. So uh, yeah, that was the end of it. We got evicted. Well, maybe and then we, should... we were there for quite a while. Yeah, you were there for must have been there for half a year or something. But um, yeah, I mean, for, for people who don't know about Thirteen Chester Street, I mean, this was a very in a very exclusive part of London. It was this was in well, Belgrave. It was right behind the palace. We could see the palace wall at the end of the street, the back back wall anyway, and every house had a Rolls-Royce outside, parked outside it, right? And the Chancellor of, of the Exchequer just lived across the road. <laughs> and I think he was the one that got a petition to get us out, okay? Why did they want you out? Was there a lot of parties and noise and things like that? No, not really. We didn't have a lot of noise or parties. I mean, we had one big party there. was huge. Um, and I left. I didn't want to be there. It was horrible. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, every, everybody was very nice, but the... Just the the core 
the, the, the core of government that were there in the road. They didn't want us there because we had Lofty used to park the van outside. It had all lipstick over it and all that. And at one stage, through the Hyde Park Tunnel, you go through there, uh, Lofty would switch off the engine as we're going through or he was going through. And then after a few seconds, he switch it back on again and it, you get this big explosion in the tunnel because it was all the petrol coming through. It just go boom. <laughs> and there's this massive explosion, right? Uh, he did it that often that once the exhaust pipe blew off. <laughs> and so he was driving it around in Chester Street without an exhaust pipe, you know, at two o'clock in the morning. So it sounded like a bloody jet engine. It was awful. Anyway, that didn't help. <laughs> so, you know, I think they had every reason to get rid of us. Right, I guess so. You were bringing down the tone of the neighbourhood, I'm sure. We were, we were. <laughs> So the, let's go to the second single, which na- now things really changed. This is like a top 10 hit, Don't Bring Me Down. Yeah. Now, what do you yeah. remember about that? And specifically, what do you remember about Johnny D? Because we talked about this on the episode with Dick. <laughs> and uh, there's so Johnny many stories D. about Johnny D. Yeah. Well, I mean, he was a larger-than-life character, and he's gone. He told us he was a Cherokee Indian, okay? So... I mean, he looked the part. Thought, yeah, okay, could be, could be. He's got those Indian features and the black hair and everything. But I think he dyed it. But anyway, he uh, he was a he was a great guy. He was a songwriter, and uh, he brought "Don't Bring Me Down" to us. And I thought it was really good. I thought it was really, really good. So two singles, you know, and and the second one's a top ten hit. So then Fontana decided time for an album. Right? Is that? basically what happened yeah yeah they say it's time to do one and and they foisted that asshole braverstock on us jack right? braverstock <laughs> right jack braverstock and we, we met him he thought oh shit who is this and he, he's trying to tell us what to do and put our backs up straight away we had, we wanted nothing to do with him you know i mean what did they think what did they think we were going to do oh yeah mr braverstock okay we'll do whatever you say so what, what was the deal with him? Was he just, was he just really straight and older and just yeah, didn't get it? Certainly middle-aged, uh, grey suit, pullover, tie, you know, feeling on top. It was just a grey. and <laughs> Just not even anyone that you would say hello to in the street. It's just a horrible person. <laughs> yeah, I know. We just disliked him at the, get, at the get-go. So anyway. <laughs> But that's the place beside the point. And and it it was early in the piece making that album that he disappeared. He didn't want anything to do with us. And I think that was Viv's fault as well, to some extent, because he was vomiting and, you know, pissed again, always drinking. That's uh, The story was yeah, that, he, he vomited over his drums and at that point, Babbitt's oh, like was out, Jack. you know. <laughs> He'd had enough. He's had enough. Yeah. <laughs> So at that yeah. point, Bobby Bobby Graham came in. Yeah, but had Bobby <laughs> produced the first two singles as well, or, or I don't know. Maybe he did. I'll have to ask Dick that. 
if he remembers. He could have, could have. Yeah. Must have had somebody. <laughs> but anyway, so Bobby comes in instead of Jack. And, and yeah. obviously he's he's younger. He's older than you, but but yeah. a musician, but he, a, dr- a drummer. He gets yeah, it. Yeah, a good drummer. And he, he was tuned in to us anyway. You know, he could see what we were trying to achieve. Uh, we accepted him straight away. Yeah. How did you go about choosing which songs you were going to record for the album? I mean, did you make a list before you went in? I mean, how did you, how'd you go? Yeah, about- kind of. Kind of. We didn't have that many to choose from. Um, it's, it was more or less what we do did on stage at the time. Yeah. Um, we didn't have a huge repertoire. So, you know, I mean, we very rarely rehearsed, you know, we just, <laughs> because I don't, well, it's probably because we were pretty lazy. But apart from that, once we got a song, uh, it wasn't set in concrete. You, you could change it a bit if you wanted to uh, as it went along. I mean, sometimes Dick would play several solos um, and it would last for the, like 15 minutes. But, you know, nobody cared. It just went on and on. Other times it, it would only last for a couple of minutes. <laughs> but, you know, there was no, no fast rules about anything. So, right. um, and that's, I think that's what, that's what kept, kept us fresh. You know, and on edge. You had to have this sort of certain edge to it. Right. You didn't know what was going to happen next. <laughs> and the audience <laughs> didn't know either. But anyway. But I think I think it's true. I think we we did have that um listening to the album. Uh it was edgy for that time. Um Yeah. There was nothing else much like it recorded at the time. Yeah. You know, I... everything else was over recorded and whatever. And pitch perfect. Whereas ours was a bit, you know, a bit out there. <laughs> <laughs> That's what makes it so good. Well, let's go through yeah. the album and, and talk about, you know, each song in, in sequence. Okay. So we sure. start with the album opens logically with Roadrunner. Which is the first? That's, that's the song that we 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 opened every show with in the history of the band. Even after when I left, they still when I when we saw them in Melbourne, they were still open with Roadrunner. So yeah, it's just a, <laughs> a, a a thing they did all the time. Yeah. So yeah, but it was like help me, you know, when you some bands or we did that early on in the piece, you, you did help me, sort of, you know. Sonny Boy Williams. Because it's easy to do and it gets you in the groove and all that sort of thing. Well, the Roadrunner did too, but it was a lot faster. So that, that got it, got the whole thing running quicker. <laughs> yeah. So it sounds like you're playing live on, on the album, on that track. I mean, I'm sure there was yeah. some overdubs or. Uh, now, I was listening yesterday and I had a, I had a, uh, my snark onto the speaker to see what key it was in, right? Yeah. And anything that was in G was me playing harp, right? <laughs> uh, anything in E was Phil. <laughs> so, but more or less, more or less, more or less, I could say. But but it sounded like me anyway, all of it. But I, some of it was overdubbed, uh, but not a lot. On stage, I know when you would play harp, Brian would switch to bass, but... Yeah, on Roadrunner, yeah. that that sounds like your bass playing. It is, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the harp is going often at the same time as the singing, so something was overdubbed. Either the singing or the harp or both, I suppose. If it, it, it depends what key it was in. Yeah. If, if it was in G, 
I don't know what it was. If it was, then I, it was it, it was uh, probably me playing harp overdubbed. I don't think so. I think that might have been, might have been Phil. I'm not sure. I got a feeling that song's in E. Anyway. If I remember correctly. Oh, yeah. there you go then. Look, did you only own one really? harmonic, only on one harp each, or is that it? <laughs> no, I mean I had several, but only only in, in the, only a C harp, right? <laughs> yeah, that's all, that's all I like to play, and I didn't get on with the other ones. So I thought, you know, okay, if it's in G, I'll play harp. Forget it, otherwise. And at that stage, let me tell you, when we used to go to when I used to blow them out, we'd, we'd stop at a toy shop on the way wherever we were. And we'd go in and, and buy a couple of harps for four four and sixpence each. <laughs> Just a toy. <laughs> toy harp. Just a toy. Yeah. <laughs> and because and, and, Phil, early on, uh, he was a bit more careful later on. He always used to smash his maracas. We used to drive Pete up the wall because Pete had to go out and locate more maracas all the time because he'd smash them. <laughs> and uh, he was so angry. <laughs> anyway, yeah, but so he, we, he had to go into the shop, so I did whatever, and pick up uh, some harps and more maracas. There you go, for Phil. <laughs> <laughs> so, but the rest of that performance is, is must be live because you can the interaction between yeah. the drums and the guitars and everything. It's uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's a real showcase for, yeah. for Viv too. That Viv's drumming oh, is absolutely all over that. It's phenomenal, you know. Yeah, it's really, really good. And uh, I think because I mean because Viv's on the cover, I don't think anybody else played on that. Maybe Bobby Graham. They reckon he did on one of them. Which one was it? Uh, Baby Doll. I think he might have played drums on that. That's what I always that thought. Was, uh, yeah. I think because I think that was the, that was possibly the last one that we did because we needed a filler because we didn't have enough songs. <laughs> yeah. and we needed, and I I remember in the studio because it was I think we did it over two or three days. I'm not sure four days. It was getting near the end or was second last day, and we needed a. I said we, there's a lot of s- slow ones on the album. We need something really rocky, or some Chuck Berry thing. So I suggested Oh Baby Doll. I distinctly remember saying, let's do Oh Baby Doll. And uh, they went, uh, okay. So Phil went home and learned the words. Uh, and the next day we put it down. Yeah, and it was just like that. Fantastic version, and I think I think st- at that stage too, um, Bob Bobby played drums on that because Viv, whether he was sick or hungover or something, I don't know, but he uh, he just wasn't there. Right, and that was the only Chuck Berry song you ever recorded. I know you did a couple of things live. Was it was that sort yeah, of a conscious all, decision because you know everybody was doing Chuck Berry, especially the Stones, but also the Beatles and Well, that's right. Yeah, they they, they did all Chuck Berry stuff, didn't they? Um, and we we sort of consciously. Went to Bow instead, uh, just to be different. Yeah, uh, but but on stage we always did um, Johnny Be Good. Always, that was another staple of ours. Always. Yeah. But uh, yeah, well, I think we should have recorded that, but we never did. Let's move on to the next track, which is one of my favorites. Okay. Judgment Day. Yeah, this one 
it's a pretty obscure song. You know, no one else did this. It wasn't a standard Snooky Pryor song. No. Right? How how did you, yeah. you know, who who chose this one? How did you come up with this one? Uh, honestly, I, I think uh, Dick might have, uh, because it, it's one we used to rehearse really early in the piece. We're in Dick's back room, you know, at his parents' house. Yeah, I don't know how he came up with it, but he uh, he certainly did. I was going to say that was some of some of my favorite of your bass lines. You know, you're just very oh, really? agile on that. It's very moving fast all the way through it, and I and I love that. It's just so exciting. Do you know what? I don't I don't know how I ever did that. I mean, I can do it, but I mean, the the funny thing was, a guy asked me uh, last year, a friend of mine. He said, "You were, you guys are only like nineteen twenty, uh, and not professionally trained or anything." He said, "How could you do that?" I said, I don't know. It, we just did. We just wanted to. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's just one of those things that, well, you know that yourself. Um, if you want to do something, you'll do it. Yeah. Having yeah. someone like Viv on drums as a bass player, that must exactly. have driven you because he's doing all kinds oh, of did. crazy Absolutely. stuff. You know, he was very, he'd been playing for years, right? So, exactly. So, so that must have I really mean, helped you. It did. We, we hit it off uh, musically um, together. You know, I found it easy to play with him. It was really good. Uh, it was later on after I'd left the band and uh, Vivid had gone as well, we teamed up again together uh, with Denny Lane's Electric String Band. Uh, Viv was the drummer and I was the bass player. Oh, yeah. Um, and we, we rehearsed we rehearsed that band uh, for a few weeks and we did one gig, I think, in Northampton, uh, which went reasonably well because uh, he had a he had uh, two violas and two violins as well, and they they had they had to have all their charts written out for them, because <laughs> wow. we didn't. But anyway, so we rehearsed and rehearsed, and we were due to open at the Rainbow in London in the West End. Um, everybody's all dressed up, ready to go. Got there, unloaded all the equipment, and then Denny decided he was wasn't going to do it. He chickened out at the last minute. Yeah, that was the end of it. That would, yeah, that your <laughs> life would have taken a different turn if that would have happened and it had taken off. Yeah, it you could might... have. Mm. But even then, I mean, Viv and I together, you know, we're really good. Yeah, just like the old days. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, it was just solid. That's all. So let's go on to the next song, which is 13 Chester Street. We already talked about the place. Then there's obviously, yeah. this was more or less improvised, right, in the studio? It was, it was. And uh, I remember it vividly that um, we decided that Viv wasn't going to play drums. So he played on a plastic chair because we were looking for different sounds and tried different things. And so he just got a plastic chair and just played on that, which is sounds a bit weird. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, it was uh, it was different. And it was just, a, you know, like, 
it was it just sort of happened. <laughs> it all happened on the day. Isn't uh, but isn't he playing on the? Uh, thought it was unknown blues where he's tapping on. Oh, a well, maybe it was unknown blues, was it? Yeah, I think You're so. Right. What 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 Dick told me about Thirteen Chester Street that there's some slapping sounds and that's actually a belt right. being slapped on a chair. Right? Do you remember that? Okay. Well, that could be it then. Yeah, yeah I was getting confused there. Yeah. So I yeah, mean, unknown it, blues and and that that was funny because uh, uh, at the time when we put out that our first album, unbeknownst to us, uh, Dave Hogan in New Zealand was was a little bit younger, and he started a band called Unknown Blues. Yeah. And uh, they were quite, in New Zealand, they were quite well, well known. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, there's, a, there's yeah. even a documentary was, about them, yeah. Did did you ever play that live, or was that just specially cooked up for the, for the album? Yeah, I think so. I don't, I, I don't remember playing it live. Yeah. I think we just did it there in the studio, yeah. Yeah, I don't remember. We possibly did. I mean, we're talking a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. By that point, you probably would have moved out of Chester Street, right? So, well, we could have been still there at that stage, but it was around that time, anyway. Around that time, there was already some uh, sort of myth making about it, some or some nostalgia for those days, you know, that you would write, you know, call. Well, I, rem- I remember uh, one night we were all down in Andrew Jackson's flat in the basement, just having a few beers, or whatever, uh, and all of a sudden the door opened and Brian Jones walks in. He just parked his rolls at roller out the front. He's walked in with uh, Linda, I think, and uh, he's pissed, and he's got a ukulele in his hand, and and Viv, Viv was out of it. He was just laying it with his head on in his arms on the table, and Brian walks up to him and just smashed the ukulele over his head and broke it into bits, wow. and Viv just Viv just sort of went, what, what? <laughs> what was that? <laughs> it was hilarious. And he only stayed for a few minutes, then he disappeared again. Oh, that's weird. Who was that? <laughs> wow. Yeah. So it's one of those things that happened at Chester Street. Yeah, it was a few odd things happened there. Right. There you yeah, you, you had like a live-in uh, housekeeper kind of a thing going on, right? Yeah, they were uh, two girls uh, that... Dick was going out with one and Phil was going out with the other. And they, we met them in Sheffield where we used to play at the Mojo Club in Sheffield. Uh, oh, that was a nice story, I have to tell you. Yeah, so anyway, they got friendly. And Wendy Young, I think her name was, uh, she moved down to London uh, and she moved into Chester Street and she was the housekeeper. So she cooked and cleaned and that sort of thing and and she was kind of off and on with phil i think so you know <laughs> but it, it worked out well she was happy she got free accommodation and everything on food and everything so it's good do you do you uh, remember one of your neighbors at, at 13 chester, at chester street was um douglas fairbanks jr and phil was seeing his uh, no he, he wasn't in chester wasn't in chester street he was uh fit douglas fairbanks they had a house in uh the boltons which is I think it's in just off the Fulham Road. I think it's a, it's not it's not actually close to Chester uh-huh. Street. Uh, yeah, it was a lot. It's like a cul-de-sac, but you think you're in the country. There are all these massive mansions in this little road uh, with acres of land and trees, 
and lakes and whatever. Uh, you you wouldn't believe where you were. They're in the middle of London. And, uh, yeah, Dick, uh, Phil was going out with Melissa Fairbanks. Uh, she was a lovely girl, and, but, but very high class, you know, yeah. a bit like Buff Phil. And she, <laughs> I remember that she used to, she used to have a, a stag beetle brooch, which is stag, stag beetle was alive, and she had these, like, uh, diamante things stuck to its back like a brooch. And it used to crawl all over her front here, all over, in her arms. They're weird, weird. Wow. I thought it was weird. <laughs> anyway, that didn't last too long. Yeah. <laughs> what, what you got next? Um, well, next track is Big City. Um, yeah, Big City. Big City. I was going to stay Big city Big city Yeah, you ain't quite big enough for me Who wrote that? Who wrote Big City? Jimmy Duncan wrote Big City. Oh, did he? Okay. Well, I, I, we must have changed it because we, nothing Jimmy ever wrote. We did straight <laughs> out of he wrote it. We must have changed it a bit. Yeah. Uh, I, think it was, I thought it was quite a good tune, actually. I quite enjoyed it. Yeah, we used to do that on stage. So just basically a straight rock yeah. and twelve bar song. Yeah. Easy to play and you know, didn't have to think too much. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. you don't you don't have any specific memories about the the chess session? I or don't. I don't. I don't. I'm sorry. I don't. Nothing. You do it so you talk about talk about, you know, you say three or four days, so you do, you know, two or three songs every day. Maybe three songs a day. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I mean, we didn't, we didn't. Uh, it was only midnight to six that we did all those takes because we really wanted to <laughs> get it in the charts. So we took our time on that, and there was a lot of us playing on it, and it was live, so everything had to be perfect, you know, right. as as far as possible, and um, that's why it took so long. But everything else, or like this one, particularly the first album. I mean, you know, four days is not much, is it? I mean, some uh, people take six months. <laughs> four days to get a drum sound. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> they do. I love my woman. But my woman don't love me. We talked about unknown blues a little bit, but yeah, again, we did. This was just totally improvised. I mean, I know. Yeah, Dick said that Phil liked the idea of spontaneous creation. Always, he, he didn't like to spend a yeah. lot of time. So this was a. No. I mean, no one was doing stuff like that where you would just sort of. It just sounds like they switched on the yeah. tape recorder and you just did it. Yeah, kind of. Um, and we never the, did it again. The engineer. Yeah. The engineer that we had was really good. I can't remember his name even. A young guy, but uh, yeah, he was tuned into us, and uh, yeah, he was pretty good. And because they had the echo and all that sort of thing going on, but they, you know, those days you didn't do multi tracks or anything. The thing was uh, when we were recording all those songs at uh, Stanhope Place, um, Phil's voice wouldn't last 
uh, and he had to, you know, have time off. Um, so we couldn't do too many takes of anything. So he, he, he would he would turn around and say, "Look, I can't can't do anymore uh, because my voice is is going." Yeah, there you go. But uh, I think he got better with the more he did it over the years. Um, right. But he always had problems with kind of laryngitis and you know stuff. Yeah, I mean, so, at the time you did the album, he'd only been singing for a little over a year. So when yeah, you think about it, yeah, really, yeah, I know. Yeah, it was it was hard for him. Hey Mama was uh, one of our favourites. Yeah, Mama, and keep your big mouth shut. Yeah, that, so this is an, yeah. uh, yet another Bo Diddley one, and definitely a classic yeah. Pretty Thing song. Absolutely. And we actually, it's something, uh, band, a local band here at the moment, or has been for 30 years, of the Bread Makers. You know the Bread Makers. Of course, yeah. Of course. Yeah, uh, yeah I played with them, I don't know, a couple, two, three months ago. Um, and... Actually, that I did a song with them that time, and Dave on Heart, uh, we did Hey Mama. And we did it a previous, another time, a year before that, we did the same thing again. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, another place at a pub. So, yeah, it's easy for me because it's all in one chord. <laughs> yeah. and, and the thing is, my fingers start because I've got a bit of arthritis now, and it's a bit, bit hard uh, to keep playing the same thing over and over again, you know, get RSI. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's that's another yeah. of the songs that live you used to really stretch out back then, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, we did. Uh yeah, they're always enjoyable. Always enjoyable that one. Always a, f- a crowd favorite. Always. Yeah, uh, Dick said that yeah. sometimes that would go on for like 20, 30 minutes. You never really knew <laughs> I, how to end I don't it. Know about that long. <laughs> well, that's why my fingers are that's why my fingers are hurting. That's it. His fault. His fault. <laughs> if you don't want me to go, you better set me free. I just can't continue, babe, to live in misery. I tell you, baby, just this time I ain't nowhere back. So, yeah, then we, we flipped the record over. Side two begins with Honey I Need, which at the time was had just been released as your third single. Yeah. That was, uh, that, that, that's with the 12 string, isn't it? Yeah. Dick had got that acoustic yeah. 12 string. No, he really good. It sounded great. Yeah. It was, yeah. I mean, it was really already sort of a change in your sound because it wasn't strictly a blues song. It was kind of, no, no, it no. kind of had a folk rock kind of a feel i know exactly, exactly i know you were all into dylan and stuff like that right yeah i mean uh what can i say about that i like the song i like the song but it wasn't pretty things per se you know it was already a change folk rock wasn't our thing um but you know it, it was good i mean it was a great song i think they did well to write that 
and the the twelve string sounded brilliant. Absolutely, yeah. And again, that was that was a pretty successful record for you. Not not as big as Don't Bring Me Down, but I think it no. charted top thirty or something like that. Yeah, yeah, well, it did pretty well, um, and it fitted into at the time into the time period. It, it fitted quite well into what was happening around musically at the time. Yeah, well, I think I think you maybe so, maybe the band was hinting that yeah, you know, we're not just another R and B band. We got a few other things that we can do. Maybe I don't know if that was intentional. Exactly. I imagine it is. With Dick, I can imagine would be thinking that way. Yeah, it could be. He was always a forward thinker. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it seems Phil, Phil Phil was more so. You know, as as later on into they went into psychedelia and all that sort of thing. Uh, it wasn't my bag at all. Yeah. Uh, later on with uh, Emotions, you know, I played on a couple of tracks, rehearsals. Uh, I don't think I don't think we actually recorded anything that I played on, but it's possible. But um, I, was, I wasn't happy with that one at all, any of it. And I'd already, uh, right at the beginning of that, I'd already left, more or less. Yeah. Cause we, yeah, because we, we weren't getting any work at the time. And everybody went home to live, and I had a, a a family that I had to think. So I I was I ended up driving a cab, <laughs> right in London, yeah. just to make ends meet. Right, yeah, you couldn't go back home. You so you no, and you were married, yeah. So there was no work. No, at, at some point, the sort of the the R and B sort of explosion had kind of started to die down, and that became a problem. It had, band, yeah. right? Yeah, where lots of other bands. Uh, changed. They went with the flow. Um, we kind of resisted that at first, but then, uh, yeah, with emotions, they they decided they jump on the bandwagon and they just change. But it didn't it didn't suit me at the time. I mean, there were several factors for me to leave. I know I rang. Uh, I talked to Brian Morrison. I rang him to tell him that I was leaving. He turned around and said, "Oh, well, they're going to sack you anyway." Wow. I thought, oh, yeah, thanks for that. Thanks for that, asshole. <laughs> so yeah. maybe they sensed that you were not happy or what? I don't know. Was that when when Wally was well, coming in, I suppose? Yeah. Well, actually, I went to a rehearsal for Emotions uh, in town somewhere, and they had another bass player there, and I didn't even know. It wasn't Wally. I thought, oh, shit, Okay. So why did I bother to come? <laughs> so anyway, it it worked out for the best because, you know, I wasn't happy what they were doing at the time with the money side of things just wasn't working out. Couldn't I had to I had to leave. I had to do find get a real job. <laughs> yeah. You know? Right. Uh, anyway, that was that. But I mean, before previous to that, I mean, those for those four years that I was in it were fabulous. I mean, we had a great time. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's just unfortunate the way the way things work out, you know. You know, as as much as I liked all the guys anyway, things happen, things change. You know, doesn't suit everybody. Yeah, well, I think they struggled to survive that, you know, and, and none of them was happy well, with emotions, yeah. and uh, no. finally it came together with SF Sorrow. But yeah, I mean, around the time of emotions, I think Phil was talking about going back to school, going to art school, and his art teacher oh, said, "No, okay. don't do that. If you're going to be in a band, at least just take a sketchbook along and do some art yeah. while you're working, you know? 
and that's what he did. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I think there was, you know, a sense that maybe it was drawing to an end at the one point, but it then well, that's right. Yeah, they had, they had to change yeah. to survive. I think exactly, exactly. But Phil could see the writing on the wall, um, as we all could, I'm sure. So if we continue, what I although I thought I thought of status quo at the time. I mean, those guys didn't change. They just kept going, doing what they always did. They, <laughs> they kind of got through. Yeah. Yeah, but but they sort of started off doing, uh, you know, that sort of psychedelic, you know, pictures of matchstick men kind of stuff, didn't they? And oh, then, yeah, true. So they, they kind of re- went <laughs> evolved backwards or something. Yeah. They, they did change a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but they were great. I really liked them. Going and, back to the album, we we talked about "Oh Baby Doll," and so the next yeah. one after that, and there's another one of my favourites, and another Bo Diddley song. She's, she's fine, she's mine. That was a brilliant song, wasn't it? Um, Amazing. I thought we we did that pretty well. I love the tremolo on the guitar. And also, I think, one of Phil's best vocals early on, you know, it kind of showed that that he was more than just a screamer. He could do it. Yeah. Yeah, it's right. He could could actually uh, begin to get a voice, as it were. Before he was, you know, he was very raw, you could say. And uh, like you say, he'd only been singing for less than a year or so. No, I think you're right. He did, he did okay on that. And I think from then on, he might, he got was getting better all the time. Yeah, I think yeah. he, re- I think he realised that maybe he was a singer. I guess I don't. I think he sort of was became a singer just because you and Dick could play instruments yeah. and he couldn't. So you're yeah, the singer. That's it. <laughs> well. I mean, like Dick said, he said that Phil was attempting to play guitar and sing, and he could sing a bit better than he could play guitar. <laughs> so that, that's what happened. I mean, it worked out because Phil had the best look too for a frontman as well. He did. That Absolutely. really, that really. Yeah. I mean, as far as the band's image, I mean, I think it really worked out well. I mean, you know, you said Dick wouldn't have cut it in the Stones because he he didn't have that sort of uh, teenage appeal you know but in the pretty things no. his look was perfect you know because it gave it it was a sort of you know that exotic you know bohemian guy Gravitas. yeah, yeah. <laughs> who's the guy with the beard you know these guys obviously know their shit you know <laughs> you know what in uh in europe for some reason uh when we played in amsterdam or sweden somewhere uh someone got the idea that dick dyed his beard pink <laughs> right, and they said, "Why haven't you got your pink beard?" And Morrison's going, "Dick, Dick, you've got. They want you to dye your beard pink." He said, "I think you should do it." <laughs> uh, it's hilarious. Dick, when I didn't have a bar of it, it would no way. I'm not going to buy pink. <laughs>
Let's go on to the next song. Don't lie to me. Now, okay. We talked, you know, we talked about Chuck Berry. He recorded this song, but you're you didn't do Chuck Berry's arrangement of this song. No. This is a no, slow no. sort of folk folk blues kind of a thing. It kind of, yeah. I think. Well, we didn't like to copy anyone. Uh, if we were going to do a cover, we put our own tape on it, so we had to change it. Uh, I think it turned out okay. I think I think you took it from a version by uh, Snooks Eaglin. Would be. I love Snooks Eaglin. Yeah, I mean, Dick said it, that it was from you had the record, I think. And yeah, yeah. So that's it might right. have been your idea. Yeah. yeah. I think. Oh, it could have been. Yeah, that's right. I've still got that album. <laughs> yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah. Great. It's pretty pretty marked now, but you know, it's. Uh, it's yeah, the it's one. Really good. It's the one that you really were playing that, when you lived at Chester Street and so on. Yeah. Just talking of Chester Street again, that was another thing. When we moved in there, uh, just after Brian had moved out, we moved in uh, in the lounge room upstairs uh, on street level. Um, there were, oh, um, there might be like two or three albums just lying on the floor, and uh, I, one of them was uh, Bumblebee Slim. But it wasn't a Bumblebee Slip record. It was uh, Apollo Saturday Night, uh, and I and it was it played to death, and it must have been Jones's um, because they he would have he would have played that over and over and over again because it had everyone on it. It was fabulous. I still got it, and it was uh, who was on it? Everyone: Doris Troy, Marvin Gaye. Were you? I know Dick used to be kind of a record collector back then. Were you also buying a lot of records, or you know who else? No. Um, well, I mean, I had. I used to buy particular ones that I really liked, like Booker T and the MGs, Green Onions, of course, which played played to death. And uh, the previous year, uh, Slim Harpo had put out his album. Yeah, we've got uh, that was one of our fav- absolute favourites. Brilliant, and yeah. uh, a few others can't remember them offhand, but whoever they are, still got them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, well, maybe yeah. one of them was Jimmy Reed, because the next song is "Moon Is Rising." Absolutely. Oh yeah, Fab- fabulous, Jimmy. He he played in London when we were there, but we were on tour at the time, uh, so we I never got to see him. Uh, but, that, was, uh, that was one of my questions, actually. Yeah, because he was he toured in yeah. sixty four or sixty five. Yeah. I knew he was there, but we didn't get to see him. We were playing seven nights a week uh, somewhere, up and down the country or overseas. So we never got to see all these people. We saw lots of local bands because we toured with them. So talk about the moon is rising. I mean, that's great slow yeah. blues and very moody yeah. and atmospheric. Yeah, well, that, that was something uh, that we'd been rehearsing, and uh, it was. I think we used to do that on stage as well. Come to think of it, there's that footage of you doing one, it on stage of, at Blocker. Yeah, yeah, one of, one of my favourite ones. That was like, same as she finds she's mine. You know, I mean, in the same vein, it's just 
I don't know. They were just uh, great, pretty thing songs. <laughs> Uh, yeah, don't lie to me. So many bands have done it. I mean, they, everybody that does it does a reasonable job of it. It's one of those songs they're always on. I think Brian Morrison wrote the liner notes, but they always, all the slow ones he would always say, "Perfect for late night listening." That's what he would write on the album. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah, I know. But <laughs> uh, you know, I never got into that. Uh, you know, we just, they just gave us the record and said, "There you go, here it is." <laughs> you didn't have any say. on the back. No, that's all. Didn't even realise that anybody was writing something. But there you go. And like it says on here, it says the tracks on this album show their versatility and desire to produce an entirely new type of LP. An LP lifted straight from the flooded stage on which they work for you. <laughs> so you probably read that oh, at the time dear. and thought, you know, what a bunch of bullshit, <laughs> right? That, yeah, uh, this one's on that. That wasn't the original line notes, I don't think. It may be. Oh, but, I got uh, it right here. Yeah, this was on. Have you? Uh, yeah, no, that's exactly what it says, yeah. Oh, is that? <laughs> yeah. It, it says the original punks. Oh, no, it doesn't, doesn't, yeah, it doesn't say that, about. but it says all that about lifted straight from the floodlit stage on which they worked for <laughs> you. <laughs> Ooh, Okay. <laughs> But one year ago, you were raw, unexposed, and latent. They were like the atom, ready to blast into the world of beat music, into a religion of fast-moving people and overnight fame for the exclusive few. Wow. Good stuff. (laughs) Strong stuff, that. Yeah, good stuff. Oh, it is strong. Makes me feel all quivery. There you go. (laughs) We're on the last song on the album, and of course, it's pretty thing. You know, what was the idea? The idea, you know, again, a very different arrangement to Bo's version. Yeah. And, you know, whose idea was it to give the shout-out to Bo and thank him for the name and everything? That was I think Phil might have done that. Phil did that. Yeah. He added a... uh, Yeah, I was quite impressed with that. I thought it fitted really well. And it was a nice closer. Yeah. Did you play it live as well, that song? Oh yeah, yeah. Often. Seems like seems like you had to, a really. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. We had to. We had to. In fact, we might have finished with that actually at uh, the end of the set. Early on, we used to do two sets, um, and then later on, as we got more famous, we'd only do one set of about forty-five minutes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was it. <laughs> so we couldn't fit many songs in. Right. Yeah, 40, yeah, 45 minutes might have been five songs if you stretched some of them out, you know. Yeah, I know. Not too long. <laughs> so, there you, go. you know, you, you said you needed, you know, you were, Oh Baby Doll might have been the last thing you recorded because you needed one more and you wanted it to be a fast one. I mean, do you remember there being any leftover yeah. material? Do you remember anything that was recorded but not used? No, I don't. I think we, uh, we, were, we were scratching to find enough to... Uh, you know, to put on the album. Yeah. Uh, we were, and I don't know how many there are. Are there 12? Yeah, I think there's 12, yeah. Yeah, so we had to do 12. 
Um, once we got 12, that was it. We said, see you later. We're off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you remember anything about the photo session for the album cover? I mean, it's really nicely done. I don't, no, I don't. The actual photograph on the front, I don't. Yes. Uh, but the one on back, I do. Uh, show me the one on the back. Oh, the one on the back of the original album is these. Yeah, the one in the top right-hand corner. Uh, oh, yeah. There you where go. we're sitting on the, gra- on the ground with the two pigeons. Yeah. Yeah, that, that was in Golden Square, just off Piccadilly, where our offices were. Okay. Uh, and we just... Yeah, and we just sat in the middle. It's a, it's like a square, golden. They call it Golden Square, and it had offices all the way around it. And uh, yeah, we just sat in the middle of it on the flagstones, and somebody I don't know who took the picture. Uh, yeah, it's quite an iconic picture that one. I really like that. I yeah. know that in Brian Brian's office, uh, he had it, he had it blown up, like it was massive. It was about four foot by three foot. Oh yeah, on the hung on the wall. Yeah. Well, yeah. so, yeah, how often would you go by the office? I mean, would you get, like, a weekly, uh, you know, pay? Was that, Is that how it worked? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but we go in there quite often because we were always down in Denmark Street, um, and our office was just a minute in Charing Cross Road, just around the corner, just uh, 30 seconds to walk into Denmark Street. You know, it's right there. Right. And the funny thing was our office there was, uh, was up these – twisty, tiny little wooden staircases right up to the top, very top. Uh, but they, I don't know how the hell they got their office of furniture up there, but the um, there was no fire escape, no fire escape anywhere. I mean, if you had caught fire, you wouldn't have been able to get out. It was awful. <laughs> I thought about that later on in years. I thought, Jesus, if that place had caught fire, we'd been stuffed. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like very sort of Charles yeah. Dickens London kind of a place. I'm sure they must yeah, have yeah, they, they must have uh, built something, some kind of fire escape by now. But who knows? Well, they would have to. They'd have to, wouldn't they? <laughs> Unless they pulled it down, it's possible because all that area was redeveloped. Well, that's right. Yeah, around Denmark Street. Yeah, right. Yeah, and the Regent Regent Sound was down there, and uh, like when we did when we did Rosalind, um, we spent the afternoon recording that, and nobody was really happy with it. Uh, sorry, not Rosalind. Uh, get yourself home. Yes, that was the Johnny D song, I think. Yeah, and yeah, we we spent ages on that, a couple of hours at least, anyway. And we had the final final pressing, as recorded onto an acetate, and which was just in the little thing where it was, which was just a little desk with the with the acetate on it. Right. And uh, as as I walked out, we all decided, no, no, don't like it, don't like it. It's you know, it wasn't good enough. So we thought, no. I said, and as I walked out, I saw it there on the on the on the desk, sitting on the little machine, and I picked it up and I said to the other, I said, anyone want this? I said because I'm going to take it otherwise. And they went, no, no, you take it, take it. So I just took it and <laughs> Thank uh, for that. had it ever since. <laughs> and so, and then when that one time early on here, uh, when we were only half finished the house. Um, the bread makers had got in touch through a friend and they'd come up here uh, for a drink. And I said, oh, I've got something for you to have a listen to, you guys. And uh, I put it on. And they said, that's not the fairies. I said, no, it's the pretty things. They said, but the fairies recorded that. I said, I know. 
I said, but this is the pretty thing. So we did it first. And they went, shit. <laughs> <laughs> so it all took off from there. Oh, yeah. I think they came uh, over to do, actually interview you for Ugly Things. And then oh, uh, right. okay. I, heard from, I heard from Nick almost immediately. I mean, what a great experience it was. And not only that, you had this acetate of the song. Yeah. You, you know, you doing Get yeah. Yourself Home. Wow. the feeling at the time that, that it was maybe too similar to Don't Bring Me Down or something like that it was a it was a Johnny D song yeah and, and it was a bit you know thought it was a bit mediocre so I think we did the right thing in just shelving it yeah, yeah. you had some quality yeah. control some a little bit <laughs> <laughs> well that was the whole that was the whole point of the band uh, everybody had a say and uh you know, if the consensus was that we should do something or should not do something, then that that was it. You know, it was a uh, democratic. Was there many disagreements, many arguments? Not really. It was, no, no, we were pretty one-minded altogether. That there, there was a, a them and us attitude. You know, right. because you, you know yourself when you go on tour, um, you don't know anybody. There's only fans and hotel staff and whatever. And it's it's pretty boring actually, when you go. Oh, you, you've only got yourselves to entertain, and yeah. um, so. Oh, that's one thing I was going to uh, correct Dick on. A couple of things. It, it's funny how you remember things, uh, and then other people don't. You know, and it's like vice versa. But uh, I, I have to do the background. When we when we went to uh, Munich, it wasn't Hamburg. We had been in Hamburg, but we went to Munich, and that's where we got the guns from. Right. Okay. Right. So I distinctly remember going to the gun shop there. So we all bought these little revolvers and they had blanks and they, and suddenly we bought something, tear gas pellets as well. They would go in them in two twos, bang, bang. So I thought it's great. So we all bought those except Viv. I mean, Viv had to go over the top. He bought two pearl handled chrome plated Colt revolvers, right? Colt 45s, <laughs> two in shoulder holsters. <laughs> <laughs> so we we hid ours when we came back through customs to England in Heathrow. We had them in our pockets or in our bags. I mean, you wouldn't get away with it these days. But he had a he had his brown suede jacket on and a red t shirt. Distinctly remember it. And under the t shirt, he had his holsters with his Colts, both of them. That you could see the shape of them going through his t shirt. And he's we've walked through, we've walked through bloody. Heathrow, you won't believe it these days, would you? They, you get shot. <laughs> yeah. So we got through. Anyway, a week or so later, we've got the tour of Scotland coming up. So off we go. Uh, Dick went off in the van with Lofty. They used to travel with him sometimes, just for, you know, for company, whatever. So they've taken off. We took off in the van with Pete. Pete was driving, Pete Watts. And uh, we've seen them off and on all the way up to Edinburgh. Oh, not Edinburgh. Uh, up to Scotland, anyway. 
So we get into the, you get into Scotland and we see them in this garage. I thought, how the hell did they get in front of us? Because we'd overtaken them. Anyway, they were there, Ima Lofty filling up with petrol in the service station. So he thought, right, get the guns out. So we all get the guns out and we, Pete's gone into this station of these, as he gone, we opened all the windows. We, we shoot again, right? Uh, and they go, oh, shit, ducking for cover. And uh, <laughs> then we've gone straight out, uh, back up the highway, and never heard anything else about it. And uh, we thought it was great fun, great fun. And then uh, further on the road, I think we stopped for whatever. And then as we get into the foothills, we saw their van parked on the side of the road. So they got in front of us again. How'd they do that? Okay. So we we right, okay, load up. We're going to go and get them because we could see them up on top of this mountain. They're up there. And they had a bow and arrow and a gun. <laughs> so we're going, we're going, right, okay, we're going, to, we're going to go up there and going to stalk them. So we go, we, we're going around behind all these bushes and boulders and all sorts of shit. And we, we get near the top, we're firing at them. They're firing their bloody bow at us as well. <laughs> and uh, it, it was just like the Wild West, you know. It was fantastic. We're having a great time. And uh, eventually... Okay, okay, it's all over. We all, all done. We won. We won that because there was more of us. We had more guns, <laughs> and uh, so we go back. And then we were playing in Perth, Perth that night. So we we, we get to Perth, get to the hotel, and everything's cool. And I think we did a gig that night. That's right. Anyway, next morning we get up and there's the local paper, and this guy's in there. It's a shepherd, and he's going. He was shot at. The previous day, and two of his sheep were killed. <laughs> and he's going, all these people were shooting. And he's going, well, who was it? Well, I don't know. Don't know who it was. <laughs> but we killed two of his sheep. But uh, <laughs> if you did get us, we didn't. We only had blanks. So anyway, I never heard any more about it. So there you go. Got away with that one. And, but, and uh, what about what yeah, about the yeah. incident with with Viv that Dick described? <laughs> yes, Dick. Yeah, he almost got that right. It was, and I'll tell you where it was. It was a, in Air in Scotland at the Station Hotel in Air. We were staying there, and it was a beautiful old hotel right next to the station, uh, very quiet. And all the way during the tour, this must have been near the end of the tour because we'd be collecting cash, right, all the way around. Pete was looking after it in a satchel. Uh, so we had hundreds and hundreds of pounds in cash. And uh, like I say, you've got to amuse yourselves, right? So we are sitting in this room, somebody's room, uh, and they had interconnecting door. <laughs> and then we locked it. And we were in there, we were playing poker, right? And everybody shared out all the money. And we are playing for high stakes, playing poker, <laughs> big piles of cash. <laughs> and unbeknownst to us, Viv's, he's got pissed, of course. And he's, he's looking through the keyhole, right? All of us, and he's calling out, he said, that's not that's not your money. That's mine. That's silent. That's money's mine. And we go fuck off. So, so we heard this running, and he's run and he's he's launched himself at the door, and the, the, not just the door came in, but the whole frame around the door came flat on the floor, and he's lying on the floor holding his gun, one of his guns. So he's he's he's, he's got to his feet and he's come up to me and he's put his gun right in my forehead, and he's going, "You're behind all this, stacks." I said, what do you mean? He said, part of that money's mine. I said, but I just won it. Look, I've got a big stack. He said, but it's mine. Some of that's mine. Because he didn't understand. We were just having a laugh. 
So I said, but how can it be yours? Maybe I just won it, right? Fair and square. And he's going, fuck. Anyway, he's run off. He's run off. Later on, I mean, I shared a room with Penrithton, I think, and we had two single beds. And in the, in the two o'clock in the morning, he's come in and he's woken me up. He's got a gun pointed at me. <laughs> he's going, bang, bang. And his, his buddy pulled the trigger. And then all of a sudden, there's these sirens outside. I'm going, Viv, that's the police. They're fucking, they're coming for you. He, he's going, what? I said, you better can't hide them guns. So he's going, oh, okay. So he's gone running off. <laughs> Next morning, I said, what happened with, with, with uh, the police? And everything. He said, I don't know. He said, I never saw any police. He said, but he said, I took all the guns apart and hid them all over the hotel. He said, now I can't find them. <laughs> He's like, he took them all in the little bits and hid them all in different places in the hotel. And then he woke up in the morning, forgotten where he put them. So that was that was the end of his his Wild West adventures. <laughs> probably for, for the probably for the best, I think. Yeah, it was, it was, it was. But uh, no, it's amazing. We never got into trouble for that. But that was uh, that was great. That that was a, that was a pretty good tour. That one, um, you know. Uh, it, I think it was a tour of Scotland as well in, in Perth another time when uh, he was that bad that he couldn't. We, we went on stage and he, he couldn't even lift his sticks to play. And we were getting booed and everything. And, yeah, it was awful. So we had to, they had to pull the curtains across. And we pissed off. <laughs> wow. So we never got paid for that one. And, it, yeah, then, then from there, that must have been the end of that tour, uh, not the one in air. Uh, the gun incident, but it was later on when he got really bad. And uh, we went down to Stockport, Manchester, and we stayed at the Mile End Hotel where we always stayed when we went to Manchester. And uh, it was there that I think Phil or Dick, I might have been Phil, was nominated to go and tell him that he was he was finished. So he went. one of them did it, either Dick or Phil, I think it was Phil, went and told him that, you know, your services are no longer required, uh, which was a shame because he was a great drummer. Yeah. Just like Dick was a, f- a fantastic guitarist. I thought he was absolutely brilliant. How, how can he play like that with he'd never had any training or anything? Yeah, amazing. Know. And, I mean, to this day, with all these pedals and everything that he does, it's just sensational when we saw him. Fabulous. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. no, he's just got better. And yeah, I yeah. guess with with Viv, it was just in the end, it was just too much. I mean, I can just imagine the stress of being in the band with him because you didn't know what was going to happen next. Well, yeah, early on it was all right because it was fun, but you know, at the end it got beyond a joke, you know, and it was uh, our reputation was on the line. Line we couldn't we couldn't handle it anymore, and he realised that. You know, yeah. he was pretty good about it. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, you sort of stayed friends. I mean, he was still he knew, around. He knew that he was a liability, I think. Yeah, yeah. of course. Yeah. I mean, is, is there any final thoughts about the album? I mean, how do you feel about that today? How do you rate it compared with, say, Get the Picture? You know, I mean. Well, I mean, Get the Picture was was a bit more refined, a bit. Uh, this, was, this was a bit of health for leather, wasn't it? Um, yeah. But even even so, I mean, it was a raw uh, first effort, and and I'm playing it now for the first time in years. Yesterday, I thought, oh shit, it's not too bad, you know, for the time uh, when we made it. 
I thought, yeah, it's pretty good, really. Um, I enjoyed it. It's very pure, I think, to what the original Pretty Things were. You know, it's one I of think those so. great I think debut so. albums that just captures a group, young group, right when they're yeah. hot, you know, from just yeah. a year of playing live. Yeah, yeah. And they, I mean, not playing anything before that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it you wasn't, know, yeah. I mean, only Dick and Brian, uh, well, yeah, well, I mean, Viv too, of course, but I hadn't done anything before that. And... um when you put it all together, it was just it just worked. Yeah, I mean, here we are still talking about it, sixty years. Yeah, six, later. sixty years later, <laughs> <laughs> and people are still mm. buying this album and loving it. And I know, you know that's yeah. uh, that's something know. that's a that's a real accomplishment. You know, funnily, funnily enough, when uh, I came over here, hardly ever a, a day or two went past when somebody wouldn't mention pretty things in Australia. You know. Yeah, we, we, it was ridiculous. I mean, the Mor- Morrison really stuffed up everything, really. He missed out on sending us to the States. We should have gone. Um, you know, I reckon we could we could have cleaned up over there. Maybe not in the first tour, but we could have yeah. done a, you know, consecutive yeah. ones and probably got a following. But he uh, he was greedy, just greedy. And uh, like New Zealand, they, they loved us over there. And uh, we should have toured Australia. I mean, we went, we're in New Zealand. We're only four hours away. We should have uh, toured Australia at the same time, but he missed that opportunity. The Ugly Things podcast was produced by James Archer and hosted by Mike Stacks. That's me. No relation to John Stacks except that I adopted his name many years ago as a tribute to my favorite bass player in my favorite band. Ugly Things magazine is available at the very coolest record and bookstores and at uglythings.com. That's ugly-things.com, where you can also order back issues, vinyl, CDs and books, and read additional articles and reviews. Please subscribe to the podcast, leave a review, and tell your friends. We would also be grateful if you became a Patreon supporter. For a small monthly donation, Patreon members get exclusive access to all kinds of interesting bonus content. Your contribution will help us keep bringing you the very best in 1960s beat, garage, psychedelic music, and more. And you'll even get a shout-out at the end of the show, alongside all of the following people who help keep this podcast afloat by becoming Patreon subscribers. Glenn Saden, Glenn Gibbs, Charlie Koenigsack, Keith Patterson, Sophia Swartz, Dean Curtis, David Biasati, David Jones, Michael Barbara, Chip Lyon, Rob Brannigan, Stephen Schmidt, J. Paul Riger, Derek Davidson, and Craig Easton. Thank you, all of you, for your support. And thank you for listening. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.